Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. To a new episode of the Mark Groves podcast. I am over the moon excited to invite Brandon Collingsworth to the podcast today. Brandon is a Nike master trainer. He's a peak performance coach. He's the founder of Warrior Retreats, and he's also a compassionate humanitarian. I love that combination of all of those things. So welcome, Brandon. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Oh man, I'm so excited. You know, out of all those titles, because, you know, I've, I know you as a friend and, and I'm so inspired by you, the transformations that you've done in your life. And I wanted to have you on here for so many reasons, because, you know, you spoke at uh, the conference that I did last year. So grateful for that. And you had such an impact on people. It's just like you walk around and people are in, in, in your energy and they want to transform their lives, which, man, if there's one way that you want to exist. That's a pretty damn good, <laughs> pretty damn good way, right? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> I like an honor. That, a magnet of transformation. I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, like if we were to get a window, you know, because I'm guessing that you know you weren't born into you know like super one of the what is it five Nike master trainers in the world. You know, you didn't come out of a diaper doing freaking handstands and shit. So right, what was the the beginning of of, of B? The beginning of B goes deep. It takes us all the way back to the streets of East Las Vegas. It took me a long time and a lot of work to be able to own my story. And then once I finally owned my story, I was able to help other people really own theirs. And instead of it being something that I was kind of ashamed of, it became a rite of passage. And now I look at it as a necessary schooling to truly, one, help me fly, but inevitably help others fly. So east side Las Vegas to where I grew up, you know. Which is like paint a picture of what that's like for people. I'm from Canada, so if people are like, East Side Las that's just the other end of the strip, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, East Side Las Vegas is is one of the most impoverished areas on the West Coast, probably in America. I know it's one of the highest high school dropout rates. And where I grew up was in the housing projects over there, welfare housing projects. Um, terms such as Section 8, WIC, were basically part of my everyday existence. And at a very young age, it, it became about struggle. It became about survival. I spoke about this at the um, Motu Summit. The first time I really knew I was poor was this morning. My mother woke me up at about 5 a.m. and was freezing in Vegas. Not Canada freezing, but freezing to us people <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> and we got on our bikes she packed my little sister up on her bike seat and we rode to this local supermarket called Albertsons. And we went to the back of the supermarket and just waited there 
for about 15, 20 minutes. And then this guy came out and he dumped all this day-old food into the trash can. And my mom sent me over there to basically grab our food for the week. And that's when I realized my existence was a little bit different than other people. And that became kind of my set point was survival. It was never about school. It was never about really fun all through my childhood and my teenage years. It was really about survival. One of the tools that I discovered going through that process was that I could master, didn't matter what my outside circumstances looked like, I still had mastery of my internal state. And I found a love for physical movement, for physical expression. I realized that it was a beautiful combatant to my depression, my anxiety, my my situation, my environment. And it became really my salvation. So when a lot of people hear about me being a master trainer or, you know, being in the fitness field for 14 plus years, they think it was a physical impetus that kicked it all off. It really wasn't. It was really out of survival and it became a spiritual process for me. So it allowed me to master something because if without it, I wouldn't have been able to make it. So when you're going through, like, I'm guessing, was your house, you know, sort of in a, a way, maybe like chaotic or was it just angst? What was it like being a kid in the home? It was really survival on the outside and survival on the inside. My mother worked random jobs. At the same time, she was a little bit mentally unstable and yeah. she really let the streets kind of be my parent, my teacher. I had to learn at a young age how to make money. I remember my first job was taking out people's trash and washing their windows for a quarter or a dollar. And I would go around to people's houses, knock on the doors. Can I take out your trash for a quarter? Can I wash your windows damn. for a dollar? And I would That's make- also, I used to shovel snow. That was my, <laughs> my first one. Too. That's also too. That's no joke, man. <laughs> <laughs> so was- you're going around doing this type of work as your first. Did you feel as the man in the house that you had to take care of your mom and your sister? As I got older, yes. I would say yeah. like 10, 11 years old. I really started. God, I thought you were going to say like 15, 16. You're like, as I got older and I was 10, I felt that, you know, like, yeah, that's, you know, what older you had to grow up fast. I had to grow up fast. There was a color that really depicted my childhood. It was gray. And I was always an athlete going back to the sports stuff. Like I always loved to move. Yeah. We didn't have the money to put me in sports. So you don't have stuff to do, you know, and I don't mind is the devil's workshop. And about 11, 12 years old, I started getting in trouble. I started learning that money was uh, money did open up doors. And since yeah. we didn't have money, we did things that we had to do to get money. We'd steal bikes. We'd break into houses. There was just this downward spiral. And it wasn't just me. It was like a band of young lost boys that really had no guidance. And we kind of cleaned together and did everything we could to just justify our significance, justify our, our existence you know, in these boxes of where dreams die. Wow. And, you know, I remember listening to a guy, I forget his name, he's from France, but he'd been abducted by uh, the Taliban. And when he got out, he, you know, got back to France and he received, I think he was receiving like mail or like an email from some of the guys that used to hold him captive And they'd be like, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, like these nice, they were reaching out. And he said that he really realized that the reason they had all banded together was because they didn't have, they needed brotherhood and they needed parenting, you know, but they didn't have fathers around and they didn't have that. So they, they found each other in a way of purpose because no one led them to their own purpose, which I thought was really fascinating. Exactly. And it makes You know, a lot of people look at gangs as a very negative thing. And it is, the byproduct is, but at the root of it, it's really just people trying to find significance and love where they're not finding it at home. Or yeah, and those those things help sustain some people. It helps them cope with the adversity of growing up in a situation where your bottom of Maslow's of hierarchy and needs are not met. Totally. And the the fact that when you are committing crimes or something for survival, you have to disassociate from the impact of the crime because you know you can't hold that space too and it's also you need to live and so you know like we have so much access to information but if you're worried about paying your rent or getting food in your mouth you're not really worried about reading 
you know, Wayne Dyer's book. <laughs> right. 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 I, I learned at a very young age, though, that I was always responsible for the bad things that I did. Like, I can never get away with wow. it. Like, the universe already knew at that time. If you did something <laughs> bad, the karma was going to come back instantly. And I can remember young age stealing a bike. And the next thing you know, like, my video game machine got stolen. I was like, you know what? <laughs> I need to, like... <laughs> I need to get an alignment. It was like preparing me for walking this path of truth and path of righteousness that would later become my second life. What a beautiful thing to have is that perspective then. I mean, I've personally, I've always been the worst criminal in the world too. Like I committed two crimes as a kid. Once I stole ice cream and once I uh, returned <laughs> jeans that weren't mine to a store and I got caught for both of them. Oh my God. And yeah, it was, and you know, it's like, I remember listening to Carolyn Mace um, in her TED talk, she says that if there's one thing she'd learn in her 50 years or whatever it is of healing is that liars don't heal. Amen yeah. And I was like, Ooh, and I'm so happy that I can't hold a lie because <laughs> I can't, I just can't. And it's, you know, what you're saying about your experience of like knowing that you were responsible and you saw the sort of like the cost and then the benefit, sorry, the cost and then the response to the choice, you know, and that, not many people connect those dots, you know, like that you were like, hey, I stole this bike and someone stole my video game machine. Like, God damn God. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the... I mean, that really set you up. It did. It did. The The downward spiral continued. Um, I, I got to high school. I finally got to play sports. I was a stellar athlete. But my home life continued to go down this, go, go down this crazy path. And when I was 16 years old, my mother decided that I was too much to handle. So she gave me away. She gave up parental custody to me to my uncle, who was very psychologically abusive, um, ex-Marine, still trying to figure himself out. And she sent me to Georgia. So she let, she sent me out of Vegas to Georgia for three months. And in that three months, it was just like a prison camp. So finally, they let me come back to Vegas. And this was my end of my sophomore year of high school. My mom at that time lost her home and she was sleeping on the couch of one of her friends at church, but the person at church didn't like me. So from 16 to 18 signified this time of being homeless and really just living on people's couches and diving into all types of things that really lead people in the three directions, dead, jail, or into a existence that is bleak at best yeah yeah and during that time it was just uh it was foggy there was a lot of alcohol there was a lot of marijuana smoking you know not in a good way not in a medicinal way not in the enlightenment <laughs> yeah yeah not well it was medicinal to soothe some 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 pains <laughs> soothe something it was just in a lot of mm. a lot of fights a whole lot of fights and um Finally, at 18 years old, my mom had this conversation with me. And, you know, although my upbringing was, was tough, there was a couple of things my mom did that really set me up for all the success later in life. The first one was she, when I was like seven years old, I was having all this trouble with these teachers. I remember my first kindergarten teacher, Miss Battlewind, ba which we would call her Bag of Wind. We thought it was really funny. <laughs> And that is my, <laughs> my first grade teacher, Miss Yoshida, they had, they just talk so much shit to me. And I think back to it now, like how could a teacher talk shit to a kindergartner or a, a first grader? Like I'm just this young, impressionable kid. And I was going through all this drama with my kindergartner and first grade teacher for two years in a row at Laura Daring Elementary in Vegas. And I went home and my mom said, I want, I want you to remember something. The only person's opinion in the world that matters is mine. And she's like, I don't care what anybody tells you. I don't care if it's the principal, the teachers, the dean. Let them know that you don't have to listen to anybody other than your mom. And I took that to heart. And I would tell principals, teachers, <laughs> parents, yo, if you got a problem with me, you got to talk to my mom. But what I realized is she, that was the turn on for the rebel in me that made me counter society, counter status quo the whole time. Actually, 
ended up being my biggest, one of my biggest strengths coming into my adulthood as an entrepreneur and as a trainer and as a leader is going against the grain, not listening to what everybody else thinks or what has been done, but forging my own path and being okay with being the outsider. So that was the first gift. And to start that at five, like you better talk to my mom, (laughs) you know, like you got an opinion. (laughs) And I just love that because that for me was a lot longer, man. Like by the time I was, I would say I, you know, I was always talking, (laughs) talking back. That's definitely something I used to do. And in grade six, my report card's hilarious. It says, uh, the first semester says Mark feels the need to share his opinion with the class. Uh, unsolicited opinion. And then it's the next, please reduce those. And then the next one is like, Mark has reduced. So good. Thank you, Mark. And then the the last one's like, Mark has increased the number of unsolicited. And so that's always been a bit of who I am is that I've always wanted to challenge. Like, no, you can't just say that, or you don't just get to, you know, and, and it probably wasn't, it was probably an external rebellion before it was actually an internal rebellion for me that like, I actually, didn't see that I was following the things I was taught that were, I just went along sort of like a, like a sheep, you know, like where I didn't question, like, why do I want to do this degree as opposed to what I'm really passionate about, you know, or like, why do, you know, as you know, like, why did I want, why was I getting married when I didn't want to at the time? Like there was all these things that were like my rebellion when I finally recognized who I am versus what I've been taught. That was very different because, of course, we're taught great things, too. But there was a lot of things we don't question. And I was listening to this book from Paul Selig today, The Book of Truth. And he said, look at your society and your your culture, your country, whatever it is, and ask, what collective lies do you agree upon? And I thought, oh, my God, we have so many collective lies. And religion, you know, in its unhealthy state has so many collective lies that we just choose to walk around and pretend like we all don't fucking know the truth. Right. Drives me nuts. Now I just made this podcast explicit. Perfect. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I, I read somewhere that a few cuss words actually up the ethos, up the credibility of the individual. As long as oh, wrapped, really? Well, shit, that's <laughs> good. As long as they're wrapped in a little bit of knowledge and insight. <laughs> I thought that wearing glasses up to my credibility. So if I can take that, that increases my, I'll take it. Yeah. But that is, it's, it's fascinating that that you had that so young and then it manifested in you actually rebelling. Cause I know you, you know, I know a lot of your story, not all of it, but it actually had you actually rebel against sort of like the, as you called it before the like poverty mindset or like, exactly. can you share that moment? Cause that moment is so amazing and pivotal. And like, I know it was one of those key moments for you. That rebellion actually happened from like who you had to be or where you had to, how you had to stay and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it all came to, to a head when I was sitting at this bus stop on the east side of Las Vegas in front of this local hotel called Sam's town, which is pretty much the the place where locals go, locals and crackheads go. So around this hotel, there's all these. <laughs> it's Yelp ratings are not that great. It's like one on, <laughs> it's one on Yelp. It's like never going here again. Check cash. There's, um, lots of liquor stores, you know, EBT food stamp spots. And I was sitting at a bus stop and I remember it was cold and there was a guy sitting next to me who looked kind of like me, but he was older maybe 45, 50, but there was no light in his eyes. And at that time, I had never even left the east side of Las Vegas. There was a whole world on the other side of the strip. I never left the east side of Las Vegas. And that's what happens, you know, with poverty is you just never leave your four corners. You never leave the mindset. You never leave into a different place that expands a person. And I, I have to say that it was beyond me that night because there was no reason other than, you know, spiritual intervention why I came to the epiphany that I came to. But it told me that if I committed myself to being a better man, to educating myself, to going back to the second greatest gift my mother gave me, 
which was she taught me how to read at four years old and she would make wow. you read everything. And I'm so grateful for that. I lost sight of that, but then it came back that night and, and, and the one step I knew that would change everything was to, I needed to become this voracious reader. So I made this pact with myself on the east side of Las Vegas in this dreary bus stop with no money in my pocket, with no home to go home to, with a childhood that was in, a childhood that was in, that was in shambles and um, a lot of friends that were just falling off one by one to the system or being killed or being locked up. I decided that I was going to commit to become a voracious reader and I was going to go all in on all in on my goals for life. And I did it. Wow. And I started, pick, I just one by one started picking up different books and instantly this expansion process started. The universe, you know, they say in Paolo Coelho's book, once you make a decision, the whole universe conspires to help uh, you achieve yeah. that, that goal or vision. Four months after that, I got accepted to this program called Job Corps. And Job Corps is up in northern Nevada, Stead, Nevada, at an old Air Force base. And pretty much it's, it's run by the government, but it's like this last hope program for kids to get their, sh- their stuff together. And you go there and you can say it. shit. Don't worry. You can swear. Gotcha. Next time I'm going to really emphasize the shit. <laughs> Get your shit together. <laughs> shit. So I went up there and it's 100, 200 boys plus in these dorms. And you get to pick a vocation. You are on like a military schedule. You have to wake up a certain time. You get oh. graded with, you get uh, graded by how your bed's made. You get graded by how. You do in class, you get graded by your how you respect the teachers there. Each dorm, there's three men, I think three male dorms and three female dorms, what I remember. And each dorm has like a hall leader and like a dean of the dorm. But other than that, it's just a whole bunch of young, broken men trying to get their stuff together. And I remember I got wow. there and the first week I met, I made a friend there. The first week there was almost a fight. And so just impulsively, I decided to break it up. I'm like, guys, you know what? So I've been around a lot of fights. Just chill. And this guy, this big, crazy dude, she looked at me and said, I got beef with you now. So I go back to my dorm room that night. And I'm in my dorm room. And I'm like putting my stuff in this little closet. And I have two other roommates. I didn't know that one of my roommates, because we could just get assigned randomly, was this guy's good friend. So I don't know. This crazy guy walks in with two of his other friends. They slide the bed in front of the door. He walks over to me and just punches me right in the face, hard as I can. I fall into my closet. And at that time, I knew it was like, I'm either going to get stomped out or I got to fight for my life. And it's crazy, the fight or flight response, because everything just started going into slow motion. And I remember looking up at like my poster and there's this like bikini poster. And I look at a like paper clip <laughs> on the ground and like I'm getting... This guy headbutts like he's from Africa. Oh my god! So I'm like, this he's is going, he's going real. This is new. Yeah, I'm like, okay, but I knew I had to fight, and we just brawled, and then finally somehow the bed was thrown out the way, and I walked out, and I was barefoot in a tank top, this, this white tank top with shorts, blood coming all down my my tank top from my head, and I walk out in the snow barefoot, and there's blood just dribbling all over the white snow. And at that moment, I knew I was on track to really stepping into my purpose on a higher level. And that right there was wow. kind of a test of how bad do I want to really change my life? Mm. Am I going to let something like that stop me? Or am I going to let some small obstacle like that prevent me from going as far as I can? And it was really symbolic to the obstacles that I was going to face walking this path and that moment really instilled in me that if i wanted to fly i had to go all out for my goals i had to go all out for my dreams i had to systemize myself and become a diligent disciplined individual and so a job corps usually takes two years to graduate out of the program high school diploma ged vocational training and like college credit i think i broke the record i finished in four months I got so focused wow. and so diligent with my process after that happened 
because I knew that one wrong move, I'm going back to the streets of Memphis. I'm going back to the same situations that I went into. And so you're I, fighting for your life, really. Literally, literally that, yeah. that fight was symbolic to me fighting for my life. And that was the kickoff. I got my first college credit and then I never stopped. I just kept going. You know, it led to community college, community college. I met my first mentor, Dr. Mahalan, a.k.a. Morpheus. He taught me <laughs> straight up like the Matrix. He, he started introducing me to higher level books. Then I got to UNLV and realized that I could hang at a university level. And then all of a sudden when I'm at UNLV, I'm like, you know what? How cool would it be if I went to the Ivy Leagues? That would be a that would be a statement. You know, that would yeah. pave the way for these kids that have never left the side of Las Vegas to show them what's possible that you go from being a high school dropout at 16 to actually getting a master's degree from the Ivy League. And I spent two years at a Starbucks working on one application. And I got into the University of Pennsylvania positive psychology master's program with you know Dr. Martin Seelan, one of the founders of the positive psych movement. And that and once again, it just it just kept on growing. It kept on evolving. These little milestones turned to bigger milestones, and then these bigger milestones turned into world shattering milestones. But it all follows a simple formula of self worth, discipline, and just owning my it time and time and time again. Owning your what? Sorry, my it, like my isness, my 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 who I am. Knowing my why, going back to what my mom told me that you know you don't have yeah. to anybody else, you are it. Yeah, that's. I think of your moment at the bus stop as being like so many people have that moment that they get to choose, and you know the universe, you know, throws our t- as soon as you, as you said, you know, the universe sort of conspires once um, you get to that. Is that from the Alchemist? It is from, from the, al- the Alchemist. Yes. Yeah. So you choose. You, you get the moment of choice and some people that might be more, what do they call it? Like the dark night, the dark night of the soul, <laughs> you know, for some people it's dark and it's dingy and it's, you know, but the moment you choose some, that moment you get to choose and we get choice points. I think so many times in our life, because of course I've had many nudges from the universe prior to waking up, <laughs> you know, and waking up is such an elusive term. So I'd say, waking up being, um, taking responsibility for my goddamn life, you know, (laughs) like actually realizing that I get to choose. And there's a line from, uh, Alan Watts from one of his lectures where he says that when you wake up to your ability to choose the conscious choice, you become the God that you were taught to praise. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Wow. And I love that line. And it's probably because, in some way, I grew up Catholic and I like a little <laughs> Catholic rebellion. Um, but at the same time, it's like when you make God or choice outside of you, you create the story that you are not it or part of a collective. Right. And that is that is such a hereditary inherited um, wound, you know, the space of like we're all taught that we're not powerful and we don't get to choose so that we have to follow systems. However, that shows up in our lives, whatever we are born into. And we sort of have to like undo the stuff that we inherited, which is you know, that's part of the path, you know, that you have to walk in order to become who you are. And, you know, it's like the hero's journey. Yeah. Yeah. It goes so much deeper too. It's ancestral healing. Right. Right. Like when you finally take all the bullshit that you've been given and you make it right, whatever that means, you heal future generations so they don't spend their whole adulthood trying to heal. Right. You know, which imagine the abundance we can create as a species, as a collective, if we're not trying to fight each other and not trying to, you know, not living in our pain, which is, you know, what we do till we don't. Exactly. Exactly. And when you finally just become aware of that, it basically dissolves all the friction and tension. Obviously, it'll come back, but that's when peace becomes a set point. Conscious peace, presence. So what is the difference between 
Brandon before that moment at the bus stop and Brandon after, like, what was the one thing that you changed about your character, your values or whatever? What was the one thing that all of a sudden you turned on? Because you were already obviously, you know, like a high achieving athlete. You obviously had some, uh, some gusto, you know? <laughs> so what was the difference? Because all of a sudden you directed it in this powerful direction where you go from like crushing a record at the, at job court to then going to UNLV, the, our community college, UNLV, and then your master's of positive psychology, which is like obviously one of my favorite programs and some of my favorite teachers do that, you know, do that work. Yeah. So what was the difference? You know, Conor McGregor has a, a great quote. He says, I'm not talented. I'm obsessed. And an obsession setting with proving that I was bigger than my circumstances. Obsession came in or set in with how far can I push myself? How far can I go? How, far, how much can I educate myself? How, where, where are my limits? I've yet to find them to this day. <laughs> but that obsession. What stories did you have to let go of? Oh, that, man. that so, you know, you had inherited because, you know, so many people are like, I think of like some of the stories I inherited just from, you know, my mom and dad growing up really poor. My yeah. mom's dad died when she was seven. There's a lot of poverty, um, scarcity mindsets that I had to think about. It was like the moment I made money, I'd always spend it like a champion. I swear right. I was just like throwing dollars in the air. Not a lot of dollars. Just every dollar I had was always flying out my hand because I didn't believe I could hold on to it. Because I didn't think right. I was worth. If we, I was taught to hate rich people, not hate, but dislike. You know, I know hate's a strong word, but I was taught to like, mm-hmm. oh, rich people are dishonest. Rich people are, you know. And it took me a long time to like learn how to get out of debt because I was so part of that debt side. Right. Yeah, I hear you <laughs> right there, brother. The the financial literacy piece that just relationship with money that oh. I taught is that's a beast. I still am working on that one. Luckily, I have a lot of people around me who do have that skill set and they're showing me the way. But it's it's been a practice that that has been nonstop the last you know fourteen plus years. One of the things that was the biggest transformation for me, and I'm so big on coaches. You know, if you look at like Muhammad Ali, Kobe Bryant, all the greatest athletes, they have a whole team of coaches around them to help them optimize yeah. themselves. So why don't we, you know, have that as well? And so. I realized that, you know, in my mid twenties and I had a coach, uh, Lisa, who, uh, Lisa Hisu out of Las Vegas. And I would sit with her for once a week for an hour and a half, for four years. And I think the first two years was really just letting go of the fact that I wasn't worthy enough to achieve beauty and achieve peace and achieve harmony with friendships and relationships. I literally for two years sit there and just didn't feel like, worthy enough to achieve any of that. It was like two years of the same conversation in just many different angles until finally one day I was like, oh, so I don't have to accept less things. So I don't have to deal with bullshit. So I am worthy enough to be in this circle. I am worthy enough for people to listen to me and take me seriously. This was even after my master's degree in positive psychology to show you how long it takes to, you know, shift at times. I selfishly did this master's degree in positive psychology because I knew I was so jacked up from my upbringing and my environment that I was like, this, this probably is going to help me understand myself even better. And, you know, it did once I sat down with the life coach and started really working on the intricacies and the minutia of who I was, it did help. But there was so many stories and so many scripts that I had to let go. And when I finally did, wow, I realized one of my biggest epiphanies was that success wasn't really directly correlated with how hard we work or our family name or our degrees. Success oftentimes was directly correlated with one's level of worthiness. And as soon as one believes yeah. they're worthy, those doors open up. Yeah, man, that I, I think one thing that for me was hard to understand before I understood it was that I was waiting for other people to fucking give me permission. You know, other people to like say, but you sh- you are worthy of being heard. You are worthy of writing about relationships or talking about, you know, changing your, your, your psychology. I had to actually do it to prove it to myself. I was waiting for other people. And then it was like, you know, the, the birth or the permission comes in the doing, you know, and there's, I remember meeting uh, George Carlin's daughter, wow. Kelly Carlin, 
Yeah, and she was really amazing. And I asked her, what was the biggest transition point for you? And she said, I was so afraid to begin, whatever beginning meant. And she said, but I realized that you find your voice by using it. And that always stuck with me because I was so afraid to start whatever it was because, you know, it was so abstract because it didn't exist yet. And, and then I just realized to just have the freedom to flow and to not be attached to any identity. And, you know, so many people I collectively listened to, like Russell Brand, I remember him saying that, allow your identity to be fluid. Allow it to always flow like water, like Bruce Lee. I love that. Says. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, because then all of a sudden I realized that I didn't have to be attached to a belief. Right. That if a belief became wrong, then I could shift. I didn't have to fight it like we do in politics and in religion, where it's like, not my God, not my polit- you know, politician. As where we can actually go like, oh, there's some truth in that other thing that doesn't align with what I believe. So maybe I should adopt truth and not be so defensive of my position. I love that. Such a powerful epiphany that directly correlates with like the first limb of yoga. Um, The yamas you have, you know, there's according to the yoga sutras, there's eight limbs of yoga. The first four are very practical in nature. You have the yamas, the niyamas, then you have asana, the movement part in pranayama breathing. But part of the yama, the first one is ahimsa, nonviolence, and the second one is sat, truthfulness. Truthfulness, outer truthfulness and inner truthfulness. And they believe in yoga that if that if satya is not adhered to, one's not gonna find that space of homeostasis, of flow of freedom. And so going back to what you said, it's like just finding that truth and letting go, letting go, letting go of what is but it's not, but also being able to observe other people's truths because we're in a, we're in a reality where there's a million, billion different truths happening all at once. So being able to sit back and just observe yeah. saying, this is what I believe, but I'm open. My, my cup is not full. It's there's room embodying that Zen Buddhism term, Shoshin, beginner's mind, having all this room to, you know, yes. be filled. To always be the student. Always. Always. So for you now, when you're, you know, because you're on this pretty epic journey, you know, I get to follow it by catching up with you and by watching your social media and and checking out your stories. And I've had uh, quite a few friends go on your warrior retreats to Peru now, whose minds have been freaking blown. (laughs) And so tell us a bit, because I know you went through the journey of, I mean, you became a Nike master trainer. Can we just like fill some people in on how the hell you did that and where that came from? Because, you know, you did positive psychology and I, you know, was that something that you were driven? Was that another part of the layer of what's, what can I do? Um, 100%. I I watched the secret in like 2000 and like six or seven when it became the hit and it became the, the nudge for so many people to start to tune into the power of their selves. And I put on a vision board, the Nike swoosh. And at that time I had really no idea on how that was going to manifest. And at that time, I think it was MySpace days <laughs> and they really didn't have any access to be able to get into contact with this Nike expression. But I did hear that there were certain Nike trainers around the world that you know, had that distinction. So I started emailing them. And after about six months, I got an email back saying, not interested. And I was like, oh, damn, they just opened up the door. They exist. So (laughs) you're like, oh, try saying, try saying no. So I kept on just emailing, emailing, not interested, not interested, not interested. Four years passed, not interested. I go to get my master's degree, not interested. I finally opened up my gym in Las Vegas, real results gym, not interested. Now, all of a sudden, in Vegas, I start to incorporate mindset and physicality, mindset into athleticism. And I start making a name for myself. I start getting these really huge influencers as clients. And I start traveling the world. And I start, you know, it's this whole different lifestyle coming from the streets. Now I'm at these red carpet events. Now I'm at VIP. Now I have 200 plus shoes coming out of my, my, my penthouse in Vegas. And, and this and this is going to go into that's a lot of shoes. too many. This is going to be a whole. It's going to be a very interesting uh, leap that I took two years later. But long story short, I'm living this completely different lifestyle. And this woman by the name of Heather Doan in Vegas, she was at a conference, and some guy there 
came up to her and was like, hey, and she's very plugged into the fitness community in Vegas. She was like, hey, he was like, hey, Dean Riddle, and he's now at the head of sports psychology at for the Seattle Seahawks. But he said, who is the top sports performance guy in Las Vegas? And she said, Brandon Collinsworth. So I get a call from this guy and he says, hey, um, I'm with Nike and I'd like to talk to you about, you know, maybe doing some work for us. Another year passes. He's wow. kind of like MIA. Once again, I'm seeing the universe conspire to really bring this to life. And then finally, they gave me this opportunity to lead a workout for a few executives at the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas. And I went all out. I was like, a few, uh, just a workout. I'm bringing a DJ. I'm bringing a mindset guy to talk to you guys about mindset. And this is going to be the most incredible training session ever. And I did that. And about a month later, I got a call and they asked me to come up to the world campus to be a part of this launch of this thing called the Trainer Network. It's really interesting. I went in there and I'm sitting there next to some of the guys' books that I used to read as an up-and-coming trainer. And now I'm on a panel with them answering questions about training. And so that was the beginning of Nike. I wasn't a Nike master trainer yet at that time. And at Nike, you're really only as good as your last transaction. And it's just about showing up. If they give you, um, if they say at 12 o'clock at night, I need a full workout for this hockey team the next day, you're staying up all night and doing it because that's just the way they rock and roll at Nike. And that's the reason why Nike is Nike is they go all out. Everybody who works there is just so driven, but also so heart centric. And so I got yeah. in the door and the first, this was kind of the kickoff to everything Nike. I'm with all these world renowned trainers and we did a workout together. You know, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm like, Am I worthy enough to be here? The worthiness thing came into full effect. And I remember they, we were in a big meeting talking about like the innovation of the new like hyper tights. And one of them was like, hey, can we speak to you outside? And I'm like, oh, sh- crap. Like you're in school, like the principal's pulling you out. Damn. Gonna, gonna, <laughs> you're like, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Shit. They're going to tell me you're messed up. You're gonna tell, and they're like, Brandon, we really feel what you're bringing to the table. We're shooting a commercial tomorrow. Would you want to be a part of this commercial? And that was my first Damn. Nike commercial. And that kicked off the, um, the five years, 10 plus commercials, working in, you know, all over the world, meeting just the most epic people. And I always tell my contacts there, like if it ended that day, I'd be grateful. Everything else is bonus. And the bonus is just keep on, keep on just unfolding in this magical way what, what's crazy is as that all happened my gym blew up in vegas uh, one business of the year and as i was mentioning earlier i was living this lifestyle that i once dreamed about and i remember when i was 30 turned 30 like 2014 i realized i wasn't happy had all this had all these shoes coming out of my living room i Literally had a, a patio that used to look that looked over all of the Vegas lights and out to the same ghettos and streets I used to live on, and I was empty. And I decided at that time that I needed to trip, so I went to Bali and I ended up in Ubud at the yoga barn. And I met this amazing yoga instructor by the name of Denise Payne, and she said, "You really got it all figured out outside." She said, "But you got a lot of work to do on the inside." And she's like, "You need to start doing more yoga," and that right there. Damn. Kicked off. That's the kind of person that you need in your life. It's like, yo, I like all the stuff you got. Maybe you should clean your shit up. (laughs) You're like, damn. Because that stuff hits you when it's true, you know, where you're like, oh, I love people like that because they're more concerned with telling you the truth than, you know, like making you feel good about yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Not to say that she did it in an unkind way. I'm sure she's a yogi, so she was probably like, no, no, no. you need to clean up. She, she was like, you got you to gotta fucking get your shit together. Like, Denise Payne. Oh, I, yeah, fire right up in there. She's I a like fiery that. instructor, but she's one of the best in the world. And that kicked off the yoga journey that led to two years after that, me walking away from my company, me walking away from everything in Vegas, me walking away from the illusion that I built around myself that said, this is success to go deeper and find true success. Mm, inner peace, inner, inner work, inner alignment. 
Oh, man. And, and I think I didn't know what that meant till I knew what that meant, right. you know, and I've had for sure many people like, um, that, what's her name? The yoga instructor, Denise Payne. That's an ironic line. Um, <laughs> true, true. <laughs> I, yeah, that's a great <laughs> last name if you're an instructor calling out the truth. Um, but I definitely have had many people call me to my greatness many times. Uh, and consistently, that's what great partnership can do. Um, but that has been is that I've felt the incongruence. Whenever I've been called out like that, it has caused me to feel pain and shame because I've had a new level of awareness that my behaviors are impacting people and I didn't know that they were or I did and I wasn't paying attention to it. When I woke, when I pay attention to that pain of incongruence, I used to use like alcohol to numb it. I used to, you know, like chase relationships, short-term ones, you know, in that was the way that I avoided the pain of the truth that someone would tell me about. But when I actually started to pay attention to the wisdom that was always being offered to me by people like Mrs. Payne there is all of a sudden I was like, Oh my God, like my incongruence is glaringly obvious to everyone outside. <laughs> you know, but I here I thought I was the greatest, you know, using charisma, using smoothness, using fitness, you know, using like outward ways for people not to see inside that I was actually struggling with my own disconnection with myself. But you know, it takes great moments like that where your incongruence is invited. And all of a sudden you're like, I knew that all along, but now I gotta fucking clean it up because I'm hurting other people through my own bullshit. Cognitive dissonance. Not that you were hurting other people through yours, but you know what I'm saying. I was. I was, absolutely. And I had this spiritual ego that didn't see what I was doing because of my societal success at that time. I was like, if I came from where I came from and I accomplished all this, I got my shit together. And the reality was I was hurting a lot of people and that... Miss Payne, when she informed me that <laughs> that, Payne, that that incongruency was actually visible, it really kicked off a whole different level of introspection for myself, um, which started with traveling. So in 2014 to 2017, you know, I traveled 50 plus countries and really understood that although I thought I knew a lot, I didn't know yet. And it just, and in emptying of the cup, it allowed for so much to flow in as my whole, my whole, the whole world that I built. And a lot of people, I'm just now starting to talk about this, but you know, once I went on this journey, I would come back to Vegas, do my stuff in my gym. And then I would go back on this journey and go deeper. And in the process, I ended up losing my gym. I ended up going bankrupt. I ended up getting sued. And I ended up going 200,000 plus dollars in debt. But I knew that that was the price that had to happen for me to completely annihilate this elusive, new, this new elusive ego that I built around myself because of my successes to really try to find this space and place of truth. And I landed in 2018, um, where I finally went all the way off the reservation and moved to Bali and had to sit with myself for six plus months and really understood what it was all about and also understood that me taking that time out for myself, you know, when the caterpillar crawls into a cocoon, the world really doesn't see it because sometimes transformation can be a messy process. But when I took that time out for myself and yeah. I just went in, it was, it was messy and beautiful and it allowed me to get right to the root and core of who I was and, and that inner amplification, that inner alignment instantly translated into outer alignment that wasn't just success because just because it's beautiful and superficial success, it doesn't mean it's aligned. Yeah. We came to a, an outer alignment that was also a successful alignment. And it was, and that's where I've really landed at this moment. And it's, and it's, and I could say for the first time that there's, there's finally peace inside me. I'm not fighting the world, not fighting everybody else, not fighting just to, to be heard, to be to be seen, to feel significant. I'm now in a state of peace at this moment, and, and, and it's and it took all the whole entire journey of 
from the streets to the success, to losing the success, to finding the peace that it took that whole journey to get me to where I am right now. Similar to going back to the Alchemist when young Santiago goes out onto that journey for his treasure and he realizes at the end that the treasure was under the tree that he was sitting on that he was sitting under in the beginning of the book. So I'm wondering for people, because I know this is true for a lot of people, was certainly true for me before, for people who have come from circumstances like yours, worse, maybe slightly different, you know, um, maybe a few more opportunities or even people who come from privilege, you know, but they believe that they were worthy of because coming from privilege doesn't mean you came from great parents, right. you know, <laughs> just because you grew up with money doesn't mean you had love or purpose or an attentive parent. So for people who are listening to your story and they're thinking of their own, like you've made what is seemingly very muddy water and what would be starting with your foot, you know, a foot below everyone else who might start on a level where they're born into without poverty and without, you know, being in, in the East side of Las Vegas, you know, there's very different circumstances for people. And I'm wondering what is it that you can tell them that can like, what is the advice that you have for them that will get them right with the, the, the victim space or the space that they're like, it wasn't fair that I was born into this. Like what's the mindset difference that makes you not in that space? There's an amazing term in positive psychology called post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic yeah. stress. We all have these micro traumas. doesn't matter what level of society we grow up in. You know, it's just different. You know, where my struggle might have been, you know, having enough food. Somebody else's struggle might have been receiving enough love from their parent or, you know, having to fulfill some expectation that, their family line is telling them that they have to fulfill the reality. And this is what I've learned, you know, and I love the quote, no mud, no lotus flower. The beautiful lotus flower grows out of this murky, dirty, muddy water. And then, if you, you know, it blooms on top of the water with no mud on it whatsoever. But it was the mud. It was the muddy water that allowed it to grow. We are given exactly what we need. We were given the exact soil, the exact shit that we need to unfold and allow our highest expression to come to life. We are also given this beautiful thing called free will, whereas every other expression on this planet, from the plants to the animals, they just unfold into their highest expression naturally. We can self-sabotage that by getting in the way of it with our own mind. The most beautiful thing that I've encountered in my path is that once I realized that the struggles I was given was the perfect recipe to, um, to allow my highest expression to come to life, it all changed. And then from that space, I could dive into it all from this space of the most beautiful word in the world, gratitude. Because when I can look at it from a place of gratitude, thank you for the shit. Thank you for the hard times. Thank you for the obstacles. Thank you for the parents that weren't there. Thank you for the streets. Thank you for the people who doubted me. Thank you for the blessings. Alchemically, it starts changing everything. Gratitude becomes the access point to abundance. Gratitude becomes the access point to being the catalyst for our highest expression to come to life. So the number one thing that I live by and that I suggest to anybody and everybody that I come in contact with is be grateful for what you got because you got exactly what you need. Yes. Yes. Like everything that happened in your life happened on purpose. If you are willing exactly. to accept that, if not, <laughs> then you'll be the victim of it. And that is, I think the, and that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that because I think that is the moment of transition. That is like, you get to decide what your past means to you. And Carolyn Mace, uh, I love her work because she's just, she just calls okay. out shit. And she said, one of the greatest sources of pain that most people will experience is believing that they deserved a different childhood than the one they had. Wow. That there's this parallel world where someone else had a better childhood and now they're pissed off or they had one, but they was stolen from them. And so they can't live in the truth of their actual experience because they believe they deserve something else instead of seeing the gifts in the shit, you know, the mud, the lotus flower in the mud. And that, fuck, man, that is such a transition period for people to actually, because I think wherever you still hold pain, it doesn't mean that experiences aren't traumatic, but wherever moments are still sticky, like moments from your past, moments that you remember, 
that means that you still have not integrated the wisdom that is available in that moment. Because the moment you take and you look at this shit that happened and you go, how could I grow from that? How will that never happen again? Then you make that moment have a purpose because you've grown from it. And that way you can thank it. But if you don't grow from it, then you can't thank it. So you'll be pissed off at yes. it. And that's such a transition, man, to, to, to know that you can be at this bus stop and create every, and then to lose the all <laughs> and, and then find yourself again, which I think is this constant, you know, it's like this uh, idea of New Year's resolutions, like New Year, New You. And I always think it's like New Year, same <laughs> you. Just like keep uncovering who you are. You know, like you don't need to change. You just need to give birth, I love which that. is very different. It's an act of just remembering. Man, I, yes, yes. And it's, you know, uh, I was, you know, Sherry Salata, you met her at uh, Motu at Masters of the Universe. I asked her, because she's like been homies with like Deepak, Eckhart, <laughs> yeah. Oprah, you know, Wayne Dyer. She got a couple people on speed dial, you know, all of them on speed dial probably. But I said to her, like, you've met all the greatest teachers in the world. Like, what is the one thing that is true for all of them? And she said that you don't need them. That's it, brother. And I was like, what? And she's like, well, you need them to teach you and remind you that you don't. And I was like, my job. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, the other Oprah. That's amazing. Um, I love Sherry. She's so brilliant. Um, and I love you, man. I'm so happy that I got to have you on here and to share your wisdom so tell us a little bit about the warrior retreats, because this is sort of, you know, the birth of all of Brandon's expression currently. Isn't it really it? is. That and Nike yoga and, and me bringing yoga to Nike in an epic way. It's going to Oh, I'm so happy that dropped. Oh, Nike yeah. Crushing that. But warrior Dude. retreats is, is truly uh, embodiment of my path and my journey. And just a little backstory, you know, I didn't meet my father until I was 27 years old. I was at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and I was in a history class, uh, a film history class. And the professor was talking about doing a documentary of this local high school called Valley High School. And I remember my mom saying that she met my father at Valley High School. And so I just said, I think my mom and dad met there. That's how I never met my father. I had no idea who he was. And he looked at me and come to find out I looked a lot like my father. And he said, is your father named Lane Rowling? I said, Yeah. He's like, that's my brother's best friend. And that night I talked to my father for the first time. Well, come to find out, my father is one of the foremost experts in infectious disease and lived in Peru for the last 14 years, married a Peruvian woman. And he's made a name for himself down here by, you know, creating, doing these amazing surgeries on, on individuals that uh, other doctors just can't do. And at that time, I was doing a lot of forgiveness work. Uh, Michael Beckwith, Dr. Michael Beckwith had this incredible exercise where you write down everybody who's ever wronged you and you forgive them because it's really, you know, forgiveness is, is for us more than other people. And I decided that time that I was going to go ahead and forgive. Why hold on to it? And I got something in Peru. At that time, I wasn't traveling much. I want to go down there and learn about Peru. So I went down to Peru and over the course of five years, Peru became one of the places that really helps me heal and understand who I was, the mountains, the people, the food, which, you know, through seven years in a row has been voted, voted culinary capital of the world, what they call the Pachimama, the, the magic of the lands, the medicines down here, both uh, plant medicine and just epigenetic medicine, which I call life alaska. You know, everybody's on this ayahuasca. I'm about life alaska because there's nothing more amazing and medicinal than life if you just tap into it right. You know what I mean? That's it. Oh. You just go look at a tree. You don't need <laughs> right. to eat it. Right. You just look at it. <laughs> That's funny, man. I love that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it just healed me. And in 2016, I was sitting in the Sacred Valley. Um, they call the mountains apples down here. Apples mean like God mountains. And I was sitting in front of this powerful apple, Apple Pachi Tucson. And I had this inspiration that I wanted to share it with some people. So I invited my friends. A couple of people said yes. And then the next thing I know, I have 18 people. And I'm like, I'm on to something. And I created Warrior Retreats. It was Warrior Retreats 1. I wanted to create something that was like a curated rite of passage because I feel like so many people, so many people in this world, you know, they don't have that, that, you know, once upon a time, it was like 
your uncles and your aunts and everybody while you're around you to help you like step into this new chapter of life. It was like this adult right right of passage into adulthood and people nowadays really don't have it. So bringing a whole bunch of people to, down here and putting them in a new environment and then setting up consciously experiences that help catalyze them, that help push them to the edge of stretch. Uh, and you can find some amazing stuff on the edge of stretch by Dr. Guadagnoli, but pushing people to that edge of stretch where they find the most growth happens. Perugis has this ability to do that. And so I created this experience. And next thing you know, you know, it's been two years. I've brought a hundred people down to Peru to tap into the lands, the people, the food connection, and most importantly, community service. You know, going into hospitals and really sharing and giving back to people who you probably won't even speak the same language as them, but you soon, you fast realize that there's a beautiful language that is deeper than verbal, that is just compassion. And what's happened now is it's just become you know, the demand is unreal. This last one sold out and I'm already about to sell out a year in advance. This warrior retreats five because people are realizing that in 14 days, you really can transform, you know, if you leave the environment, leave the thought process, leave the paradigm, leave the story and you wrap yourself in a place of a place where people have set the collective intention to only see you at your highest expression, man, the transformation is insane. And so going on, just wrapped up number four, three countries, 20 plus individuals, all in attendance. And it was just magical. It was so beautiful. We raised $10,000 plus for the people of Peru. I have a big thing. A lot of people go to these countries and they just take. I'm very big. I feel like the lands listen. And if you go to a country, it's the respectful thing to do is to give first before you take. So we, Saved a lot through four plus Christmas parties. We bought all types of medicine for the hospitals. And these people are like family. Every time I come back, it's just like, man, wow, what epic individuals, what incredible people. And it wasn't just because I saw all their light, because when you're stretched like that, you also get to see people's other sides. And you know what? Those are beautiful too, because as we know, it's the things that might not be the prettiest to actually end up being the manure to catalyze everything else. So to be able to see these people in just such a beautiful way and for them to see me also and, and allow me to do me is just such honor. And so warrior retreats has just been truly an artistic expression of mine, my, my, my most cherished service project at this moment. And it's been beautiful to see me grow in Peru. <laughs> That's amazing. And to, to see that no matter where you go in the world, people are people, humans are humans, you know, it's just such a beautiful opportunity for people to be able to connect to something that's greater than them and go experience an environment that will allow their healing and their expansion and their birth of who they are. And then the mistake of course people make is they go back and become who they were instead of taking who they are going back home and making the world respond to them instead, you know, like transforming their environment to match, like bring the experience of warrior retreat home, you know, don't only leave it there. And that's, that's often where we make the mistake. So I'm so grateful that you're doing that. Cause I know that I've had quite a few friends go on the warrior retreats and have come back expanded in love with life, just feeling like all out bliss and gratitude. And, you know, gratitude is such the elixir oh, of life. That's a good point. When you're in that state, I mean, the world just comes to you. You know, everything just comes to you when you're grateful and you're in a state of appreciation. Um, Man, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your story, who you are, what you do. Um, I love you, brother. Thank you for being on the podcast today and sharing your journey with people. Mark, you are a true paradigm shifter. You're a leader. You are truly making impact on this planet and elevating so many individuals. And it's an honor, brother. Thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you for having me on your podcast. And thank you for being so damn funny. You are, you bring smiles to me every time and laughs to me every time I'm in contact with you. And, and I'm sure, and from what I've witnessed, many people, uh, you have the same effect on them. So thank you for doing the work that you've done, man. Let's just 
absolutely crush 2019. Oh man, I can't wait. I mean, it's already <laughs> happened. Let's just continue. Um, the so where can people find you? Because you know they need to. They've heard your deliciousness. Where do they go to get motivated? Where what, we'll put the links out to this, but for the people who listen, who are listening, um, where can they find you? For right instant now? access. Instagram is the is the medium that I use and I choose to play with at this moment, and it's Brandon Collinsworth, simply my name, and I'm very active on there, and I love it because it gives me the ability to interact in real time. Um, it's not just some website that's just sitting there that you can you know go browse. It's actually it gives me the opportunity to you know, exchange energy, knowledge, and gratitude with, you know, all the people I come in contact with. So IG at Brandon Collinsworth is the golden place. Perfect. And it's Brandon with an E. Yep. And it's Collinsworth so. without a G. So Brandon Collin- Collinsworth. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah. We'll link it out. We'll link it out. And website, um, our website. Perfect. So make sure you guys go check that out. If, if you're feeling called to go expand and go check out and, and um, embrace Brandon as your leader, your teacher, and your, your friend. So any other places to find you? One other of the things? things that is dropping actually this week is a whole entire Nike yoga movement. Um, it's, it's been a few years in the making. I proclaimed in Bali that I'd be the guy that fused yoga into the sports performance world. And as many things in my life, when you speak it with conviction, it comes to life. And so this week, we're dropping the whole Nike yoga line. Uh, the first time Nike has actually made a line of yoga clothes for men, but it's also translating into the NTC oh, app, the so Nike exciting. training app, where I've been able to partner up with so many special master trainers around the world to create an unparalleled digital workout experience that now really includes yoga into the mix so we're going to be dropping all kinds of things workouts mindset and most importantly incredible clothes that feel good you know I'm, I'm, if, if i didn't like nike i didn't like nike's clothes awesome. i wouldn't be able i wouldn't uh i wouldn't be rocking with them if i didn't agree 100 percent with the philosophy i wouldn't be rocking with them so that's all about to drop and so if you want to work out with me download the ntc app with the click of a button let's get it in Awesome. Okay. So we'll link out to the video that you dropped with Nike Yoga and to the Nike Yoga app. Well, don't worry, everyone. We'll take care of you. You just go to the show notes. And B, thanks so much, man. Much love. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.